0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can
1: learn about our shared
0: past. On to the episode.
1: The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber.
0: And finally, after much teasing, we are talking about Harappa this week. Let's Harapp, kids. Okay, well, I say we're talking about Harappa this week, but actually we're talking about what's commonly called the Indus Valley Civilization. It was originally known as the Harappan Civilization and still is by some. But, first off, what do you know about the Indus Valley, Anna? Mm, very little. It is
1: a valley. Good, good, good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mohenjo-Daro is an important site in it. Okay. And they had cool wiggly art and statues and okay. like, you know, depictions of the human body that were very sort of live and naturalistic. I think I knew more at some point. But I think most of what what I know comes from one of my favorite books or actually trilogies of all time, which is the cartoon history of the universe, parts one, two, and three, by Larry Gonick which um is very much on brand for me and might be why if i think of mohenjo-daro and the harappan civilizations and indus valley civilizations i i think in cartoons
0: oh i remember the cartoon history of the universe from when we were kids it's
1: they're so good i mean I they're a little they're a little outdated now I'm gonna just because again. but they're Youth. so good mm.
0: okay well let's start with the basics so the Indus Valley is a river valley formed by a river.
1: Okay. I, I am following and, okay, you. Okay, good. Okay, you're I'm picking there. up what I'm putting
0: down. And what I'm putting down is a lot of silt. And this river valley was formed by the flow of the Indus or the Sindhu. Uh, river and that's been happening for about the past 50 ish million years which Mm -hmm. um, makes it the oldest river in the himalayan region which is sort of like a that's old it feels like but also that feels like a small conference like in terms (laughs) of like it's the oldest in the himalayan region Uh, the oldest one at all the new river in West virginia
1: is the oldest river ever
0: I think it's the the oldest continuously flowing river. That's exciting. And it's
1: called the New River. Yeah. Mm, this pleases me.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, so since it's in the Himalayan region, it may not surprise you to learn that the source of the Sindhu River is the Tibetan Plateau. And it flows through what is today Pakistan and India before emptying into the Arabian Sea. And the Arabian Sea is the water between the Arabian Peninsula and the Indian subcontinent. That you probably thought was part of the Indian Ocean, but it's not. It's the Arabian Sea. I probably, probably did think that. Yeah. Um, and it's near the point. So you know, like how the Arabian, like the Arabian Peninsula and the subcontinent look like they fit together. Mm-hmm. Like if you tuck them in. So mm-hmm. that point that where it looks like it fits together most nicely, mm-hmm. um, that's the Arabian Sea. Okay. Um, And this is near the port, it's near what's now the port city of Karachi in Pakistan. Um, Just like other major river systems our listeners may have heard about in their high school world history classes, the Sindhu River is subject to seasonal flooding of its delta from rainfall and or snow melt from its sources. A lot of snow up there in the Himalayas. Mm, um, so I've heard Yeah in our show notes I'll include some cool time elapsed NASA photography Of the swelling and ebbing of the Sindhu, As well as a photo taken at night That shows the glow of urban and industrial activity Along the length of the river basin And it's and it's really cool to see how Like over the course of the next hour or so We're going to be talking about how This was like a major Site for Like activity and trade and urbanization And it's it's the same thing today And you can see that from NASA photos yeah yeah and um so here's a here's a line from wikipedia which like stopped me in my tracks and made me be like what um him the indus is one of the few rivers in the world to exhibit a tidal bore (laughs) which like relatable um and so a tidal bore if you've never heard of it at like bore as in like dull not boar as in like wild pig um a title boar may take oh, on no, very... hang on it's
1: spelled b-o-r-e it doesn't mean and it doesn't mean that it's dull no just no, no, no I'm saying, like
0: spelling wise yes yes like, yes 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 i'm not talking about a boar
1: um
0: <laughs> I'm talking about a bore. or a
1: boer as in the yes. boer war.
0: thank you Mm. It took me a second. Mm -hmm. Um, A tidal bore may take on various forms, ranging from a single breaking wave front with a roller, somewhat like a hydraulic jump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we totally know what that is. A
1: bunch of wave scientists over here. Yeah,
0: I know. To undular bores, comprising a smooth wave front, followed by a train of secondary waves known as whelps. Whelps. Um, Large bores can be... so (laughs) so weird. Sorry. I know, right? Why, Why is it a whelp?
1: I don't um, know, but you know when a, when an iceberg breaks off a little miniature iceberg, that's called a calf.
0: Oh, I think I did know that. So point. maybe
1: there's just a, sort of a theme of water-based animal baby yeah. copying. Yeah.
0: Um, cool. And large boars can be particularly unsafe for shipping, but <laughs> also, also for present- socializing. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Ugh, don't i know it um but also present opportunities for river surfing so mm. the indus like the indus or sindhu is a river that has waves on it yeah it's like the severn in the uk the severn bore is pretty famous for
1: being a tidal bore and yeah. people surf on it yeah which
0: is wild to me and also it's cool it's they roar
1: barren. Yeah, they go, Rawr. well, I mean, that's not, I can't make the noise of a, a boar roar. Oh,
0: I'd love to hear you try for another 10 minutes, please.
1: How is that? <laughs> Thank you. Let's move on from that area of our expertise. To, oh, yeah. <laughs> to the Indus Valley civilization, which, despite its name, is not limited to the Indus Valley itself. Lowest estimates contend that only maybe 10% of known archaeological sites associated with the Indus Valley civilization are actually in the Indus Valley, but I don't think anyone's making the argument that the the Sindhu River and its tributaries weren't just as important in antiquity as they are today. Um, So let's talk about a few of those cities, and we're going to start with Mergar. Mergar is a
0: large Neolithic and Chalcolithic site, and Chalcolithic is like the Copper Age, right? Sometimes it's like contemporaneous with the bronze, depending on well, where you need, are. You do need copper to make bronze. Yes. So, do yeah. you need stone to make copper? I don't think you do.
1: Don't no, you need me. ore, which comes out of... Seals. Seals. I do dude. They go,
0: ore, ore, ore.
1: <laughs> Future me is going to have fun with this. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You're welcome, Futuriana. Okay. So, uh, Mergar is located at the foot of the Bolan Pass on the Kachi Plain of Balochistan in modern-day Pakistan. Continuously occupied between about 7,000 to 2600 BCE, Mergar is the earliest known Neolithic site in the northwest Indian subcontinent, with early evidence of farming, uh, particularly wheat and barley, herding of cattle, sheep, and goats, and metallurgy. Hence, Calcolithic. Um, so the site is located on the principal route between what is now Afghanistan and the Indus Valley. This route was also part of a trading connection established quite early between the Near East and the Indian subcontinent. So the earliest residences at Mergar were freestanding, multi-roomed rectangular houses built with long cigar-shaped and mortared mud, mud bricks. These are, are very similar structures to those built in early 7th millennium Mesopotamia. You know, mud brick is mud brick is mud brick, I guess. Um, burials at Mergar were placed in brick-lined tombs, so they loved bricks, accompanied by shell and turquoise beads. Even at this early date, the similarities of crafts, architecture, and agricultural and funerary practices indicate some sort of connection between Margar and Mesopotamia, which is is interesting given our recent episode on Ur and possible Harappa or Ur, Ur, Ur. That's the the Great Seal of Ur.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Okay, so UNESCO has listed uh, the Marigar site in its tentative heritage list, but it has not yet been declared a world heritage site. Ayub Baloch, an author and former secretary at the Culture, Tourism, and Archives Department in Balochistan, uh, said that Islamabad never took the ancient cultural site seriously. The concerned authorities in Islamabad failed to present the Mergar case to UNESCO in an effective way. Otherwise, he is confident that it would have been declared a permanent world heritage site on UNESCO's list. In native Balochi, mer means love and gar refers to heaven, and so Mergar could be translated into English as a heaven of love.
0: I mean, okay. So very
1: very nice. But um, the reality at Mergar is really far from what you would think about for, such, uh, you know, such a historical site, such an important archaeological site. Even in the nearby village, many locals didn't know that there was such an old site there. Um, it's Basically, an empty plain with potsherds scattered on the ground, and there's nothing identifying the ancient site. And locals say that the site was bulldozed during a tribal feud. So, when French archaeologist Jean-François Jarige salut. and his team, <laughs> salut, salut, Jean-François, uh, so when they when they were doing an excavation on a post-Harappan site there, uh, in in the CB district of Balochistan, the team was told by some locals from a nearby town that some artifacts had been unearthed after a rainstorm. And so this this new site was what would later be known as the ancient settlement of Mergar. Jarij visited that area along with his team, and they they were shocked to see it, says Professor uh, Jahan Zahib Rind, an expert on the subject. And so that was the moment when they decided to start excavating at Mergar instead of where they had been previously excavating. And so um, the site was excavated by a French archaeological team under Jarvege's direction from 1974 to 1985, and then again uh, from 1996, and work ended there in 2000. The excavations uncovered artifacts from the 8th millennium to mid-3rd millennium BCE without any cultural break, so evidence of continuous occupation during that time, which is a long time. Um, So technically, artifacts there are are labeled as the Mergar culture. Some people call the the ancient people that inhabited the area as the Mergar civilization, but um, there's some debate on that front. A civilization is considered sort of academically to be the most advanced stage of human social and cultural organization. So this is a quote from, uh, Jahan Zahib Rind again. There are some specific ingredients of civilization, such as writing monuments and a political and economic system. A culture does not have all of those above mentioned ingredients, such as a script. A civilization is more complex and advanced than a culture. Okay. Um, However, here's a quote from Ayub Baloch. This definition of civilization comes from the Western world's parameters, and it is very subjective. It is very hard to accept this much complexity from a site which dates back to the 8th millennium BCE and not view it as a civilization. However, even if you go by the definition of the Western world, cultural sites are no less important than civilizations. Um, So, I mean, that's sort of semantics. Not really what we're here for. Um, But the French study led by Jarige revealed that Mergar is the earliest known farming settlement in South Asia. The excavations made some major contributions. The cultural sequence evident at Mergar provides a a pretty clear picture of the process of humans settling down and starting to domesticate plants and animals as the source of survival rather than hunting and gathering. So um, that's really exciting for people who study the transition from hunter-gathering huntering and gathering to to agriculture yeah mm -hmm. huntering what hunters do um which you know means that the transition to food production to domestication is a, a local indigenous event maybe i mean so maybe they weren't learning it from somewhere else maybe it came from here maybe the domestication of plants and animals happened multiple times
0: in different places you know it's it's exciting stuff yeah so as far as harappa And why this is called the Harappan Civilization. So what what follows, what we'll be talking about for the rest of this episode. Um, The Mergar Civilization. The Mergar Culture. um, Whatever you want to call it. Um, It seems to have transitioned into what was commonly known as the Harappan Civilization. But more widely as the Indus Valley Civilization. Um, so, So what even is Harappa? Right. So Harappa is the type site. So um, for much of archaeology as a discipline, if you find something, like if you find a cultural horizon, like if you find a certain type of pottery or a certain set of um, traits in terms of the material culture um, found in a place, if you find something for the first time, something that seems distinct from other times and places excavators would often name it for that place right so neanderthals
1: are named for one of the places that the specimens were first found the neander valley
0: yeah Mm -hmm. and yeah and so that's something that you see um it's pretty ubiquitous in archaeology of a specific age Mm. um indeed and and so um harappa was found first and it became the type site now harappa isn't even like the the best example of harappan material so we're not Ironically. even gonna, yeah so we're not even gonna like spend that much time on harappa but something that i find most interesting about harappa is how it was discovered and how it wasn't discovered for so long okay um in a second i'll i'll kind of walk you through the periods like the phases of Harappan civilization but as far as harappa proper um it was found in it it was excavated first in like the 1940s but almost a hundred years before a lot of the buildings of harappa were were kind of mined so the the bricks were pulled from the um from the the ruins of harappa and they had been so the mud bricks that had been been used in building the various architecture of harappa had been used locally uh, sort of as right as as that tends to happen quite often yeah and it wasn't um and it it didn't make a huge kind of dent as it were in in the site um until the 1850s when um, the British colonial powers were building the Lahore Multan railway, and so they <sighs> uh, they used they used bricks from the ruins as a track ballast in right, the construction so to hold down the the tracks. Yeah, so um, <laughs> Harappa was half discovered by the British when. Um, when they were building a railway, it wasn't but, discovered so much as like, yeah, jolly useful. Yeah. yeah, they're like, oh, look at these. Um, and look at these bricks. That kind of happened. That happened in the 1850s, which destroyed many of the late phases of occupation. Um, okay. And then after that, so since the 1850s, there's been an increasing use of irrigation agriculture, uh, which resulted in a great term, gross salination, uh, which is when. <laughs> You end up with too much salt in the soil, and it's, and it's gross. gross. <laughs> yeah, um, gross and then, as in
1: large scale. Just, we, just to be clear, then, we don't actually think it's because it's gross.
0: No, I mean it's not ideal um, yeah. for anyone involved, but it's definitely You're not salty. ideal for just like me. Um, oh God! And it's, <laughs> and, oh God! <laughs> and and then the sort of the third blow to ruins of harappa the, the remains of the site As if they hadn't already had a tough yeah, enough they, time. yeah <laughs> was um the excavations <laughs> well, were, were archaeological well, yeah. excavations because when you when you remove them yeah when you remove the the dirt that's holding everything together sort of keeping it there um it further False. exposed False faster yeah, yeah it, it, fu- it further made the remains vulnerable to salination so what it hadn't gotten to before and so as a result since the 1940s when sir mortimer wheeler um excavated there um a lot of the stuff that was that was exposed then has been destroyed um that's a real bummer yeah but fwiw um
1: can can you say that in in grown-up english please for
0: for what it's worth Thank you. Um, Excavations at Harappa and the other hundreds, like hundreds of other Harappan sites in the Indus Valley and sort of around it, uh, archaeologists have identified the following chronology for the Indus Valley civilization, um, which... Take me through the years. uh, Yeah, and it spans most of the third and second millennia of the... uh, before the common era, of the before common era. Um, Of the BCE. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, Starting with Mergar, the Mergar culture sunsets. It bows out. It, it reaches its twilight period. Yes. Um, and sort of gives way to the Cote de um uh, the early Harappan phase. I'm not, oh, this that's is a- ringing some... Yeah, like sophomore year bells. Yeah, yeah, you took this oh, class. Oh, man. I sat next to you. Um, and so this this is, like, I'm not translating it. It's also known as the early Harappan phase. And that's mm-hmm. about 2800 to 2600 BCE. Okay. Then you've got the Harappan phase from around 2600 to 1900 BCE. And so a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Royal Tombs of Orr, mm-hmm. the early dynastic period fits squarely in this. Okay, cool. The Harappan phase is happening in the Indus Valley pretty much squarely around the same time as the early dynastic period and then the Akkadian Empire and then the or three period is happening in Mesopotamia. So like when stuff's really popping off in those city states down there in Mesopotamia? yeah. And then there's the transitional phase, which I feel like we've all had. yeah, they're out there trying to get a job. Maybe they'll go back to school. They don't know. Um, and for Harappa, this was around 1900 to 1800 BCE. And then there's what no what is known as the late Harappan phase from about mm. 1800 to 1300 BCE. But so Harappa isn't even the most Harappan of right. Harappan cities. Uh, there's a much better example, which it seems like Anna already knew about. I knew the name. Also, I feel like you heard about it in that class we took together. Yeah, but you know.
1: Didn't stick. <laughs> uh, so the site is Mohenjo-daro, and it is it is more Harappa than Harappa. So it's it's the best preserved city, the best preserved known city of of this age in the world. The cool thing about Mohenjo-daro is that uh, in, in a lot of archaeological sites, when occupation of that site ends, there's often evidence of. People leaving the site for a reason, so like the site is destroyed, or there's evidence that the people themselves destroyed the site and, and moved on. Um, at mohenjo Daro, there's there's none of that. It's just people left, and and this one is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So Daro, yeah, Harappa is a, also isn't right. It's a maybe. It's on the yeah Har- list. Harappa is is on the the wait list for UNESCO. <laughs> Um, so Daro is a word in the Sindhi language for mound. And the author Gregory Paseo explains in his book, The Indus Civilization, A Contemporary (laughs) Perspective, that Mahenjo Daro is a mispronunciation of a Sindhi name meaning mound of the dead men.
0: Which is very Greg. I worked with him. Oh, I was going to say, boy, you're on first name terms, huh? Yeah. I, um, I worked with him at BOT in Oman. Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: The ruins of Mahendradaro remained undocumented for around 3,700 years, weirdly specific, until R.D. Banerjee, an officer of the Archaeological Survey of India, visited the site around 1919 or 1920, uh, identifying what he thought to be a Buddhist stupa. And a stupa is a dome-shaped structure that's um, erected as a Buddhist shrine. So he knew that that was was supposed to be there. Um, But while he was there, Investigating it, he found a flint scraper, which uh, convinced him that the site was much, much older than that. Um, so this led to large-scale excavations of Mohenjo-Daro, led by uh, Kashinath Narayan Dikshit in 1924 and 25, and by John Marshall in 1925 and 1926. In the 1930s, major excavations were conducted at the site under the leadership of uh, Marshall D.K. Dikshitar and Ernest Mackay. Further excavations were carried out in 1945 by Mortimer Wheeler and his trainee Ahmad Hassan Dani. So the last major series of excavations were conducted in 1964 and 1965 by George F. Dales. And then after 1965, um, excavations were banned due to weathering damage to the exposed structures. So like we mentioned with um, Harappa uh, and the only projects that have been allowed at Mahajadaro since then have been salvage excavations, surface surveys, and conservation projects. In the 1980s, German and Italian survey groups led by Dr. Michael Jansen and Dr. Amorizio Tosi used less invasive archaeological techniques such as architectural documentation, surface surveys, and localized probing. <laughs> <to get laughs> I'm a child, (laughs) to gather further information about Mohenjo-Daro. A dry core drilling conducted in 2015 by Pakistan's National Fund for Mohenjo-Daro revealed that, no surprise, the site is larger than the unearthed area. (laughs) They they took some cores and went, huh, it was big. (laughs) Mohenjo-Daro is really cool. I mean, as is the Indus Valley civilization in general because of city planning, which is Possibly the dorkiest thing I will have said today, but it's really cool. So Mahendradaro has a planned layout with rectilinear buildings arranged on a grid plan. Most were built of fired and mortared brick. Some incorporated sun-dried mud brick and wooden superstructures. The covered area of Mohenjo-Daro, as in like the area where there are buildings, is estimated at three hundred hectares. And I never remember how big a hectare is, but that is big.
0: Isn't a hectare ten? Acres, it's, yeah, it's like hundred yeah, acres. Like, it's a it's hundred, it's 10
1: by ten. It's a ten by ten acres, I think. Hundred square 10, acres. Yes, the Ox, Oxford Handbook of Cities in World History, it's a very niche publication, <laughs> offers quote a weak estimate <laughs> of a peak population of around forty thousand people at Mahendradaro in nineteen fifty. Sir Mortimer Wheeler identified one of my
0: professors w- was trained by him. That's weird, and also like one it's of my professors who about. never got a PhD because I think he like learned how to be an archaeologist before PhDs were invented. Oh, but he was one of Wheeler's students. That's which, crazy, isn't that so crazy? So wow. <laughs> um. So Wheeler
1: identified one large building in mohenjo as a quote great granary. Super great. Certain wall divisions in its massive wooden superstructure appeared to be grain storage bays complete with air ducts to dry the grain. According to Wheeler, carts would have brought grain from the countryside and then unloaded them directly into the bays. However, uh, Mark Kinoyer noted the complete lack of evidence for grain at that granary, which he argued might therefore be better termed a great hall of uncertain function.
0: Man, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I want to call my apartment a great hall of uncertain function that is my studio apartment yes <laughs> um
1: well do you have a large and elaborate public bath next to your studio apartment yeah my dog just walked into it to go <laughs> bark in there well at mohenjo daro there is a large and elaborate public bath next to the what wheeler called great granary and what <laughs> what do we, they call that what
0: the, oh, the bath? The large and elaborate public bath. Oh, they call that the great bath. Ah!
1: <laughs> Can't tell you how many times I've had a bath and then thought, oh, that was a, that great, was a bath. great bath. That was a great bath. So at the great bath, from a colonnaded courtyard, steps lead down to the brick-built pool, which was waterproofed by a lining of bitumen. You think that smelled weird? Yeah. Like, do you think you would bathe and then kind of smell like tar? Yeah. Other large buildings include a, quote, pillared hall. Guess what that has? I don't know. It's pillars. Oh! Thought to be an assembly hall of some kind and the (laughs) so-called college hall. What? A complex of buildings comprising 78 rooms, thought to have been a priestly residence. Okay. mohenjo had no series of city walls, but was fortified with guard towers to the west of the main settlement and defensive fortifications to the south. Considering these fortifications and the structure of other major Indus Valley cities like Harappa, it is thought that mohenjo was an administrative center. Both Harappa and mohenjo share relatively the same architectural layout and were generally not heavily fortified like other Indus Valley sites. So from the, the the fact that there's sort of cookie cutter city layouts indicates some kind of overarching political or administrative central planning, but the extent and and function of an administrative Indus Valley center just sort of is unclear. Um, the city also had large platforms which may have been intended as defense against the the Indus River, the, the Sindhu River flooding. Um, according to a theory first advanced by, again, Sir Mortimer Wheeler, the city could have been flooded and silted over maybe six times and later rebuilt in the same location. So there's evidence of silt, big silt layers being laid down in Mohenjo-daro repeatedly, um, which may or may not have meant, you know, buildings were destroyed and then rebuilt and then maybe the city got bigger.
0: Yeah. So. And then I guess after a point, they're just like, oh, <laughs> they just left.
1: Yeah. And maybe it (laughs) flooded for the seventh time and they were like,
0: God, you know what? No. Enough of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So now that we've gone over um, a bit of Harappa at home, let's talk about Harappa abroad. Harappa at home. Harappa field. Harappa at sea. So another aspect of the Harappan phases is the huge amount of evidence we have for maritime trade, uh, both in terms of where it went and where it came from. I bet it went into the ocean. No, it and went it over the ocean to God. ocean. Shh. So okay. So I'll uh, shut up. So I'll get to <laughs> the- <laughs> you. Love me. I'll get to the materials traded and with and with whom they were traded in a second. Um, but we're pretty sure we know where these trade goods and the boats that were carrying them originated from because there are Harappan ports that have been excavated. One of the southernmost of these port towns is Lotal, which is in the Gujarat province of India. So uh, Gujarat is mostly the little peninsular nubbin that juts out from the <laughs> western side of the subcontinent. Are you loving my geography? I'm just reacting to the phrase peninsular nubbin. This, it, But it works, right? You know what I'm talking about. I sure do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was excavated from 1955 to 1962 by, again, the Archaeological Survey of India. And it was chronicled in an absolute unit of a two-volume survey known mm. as... Chunky. <laughs> it is a chunky book. Um, and it's it's two volumes entitled Lothal, a Harappan Port Town. And it does what it says on the tin. So in that survey, excavator S.R. Rao uh, describes a dock built on the eastern side of the site. So the east side. Um, which he identif- yeah, which, and he identified that dock from its large size, the brick lining, and the rectangular shape of it. Many archaeologists in the intervening decades take issue with Rao's theory of a mighty dock responsible for birthing all those ships that roved around the Indian Ocean, uh, suggesting instead that that big brick rectangle was more likely a cistern for drinking water. Oh, you don't want don't want to put your boats in there. Yeah, you don't want to put your boats up against it either. So maybe it was for drinking water. But that said, even if that wasn't like a big old dock for all those boats, um, there is evidence of of dock like or jetty like, and um, a jetty is like a small narrow dock.
1: I no, it is. Know. It is. I, did, I, I didn't know until I that's read correct.
0: the Thornbirds. And so these are at other excavated port towns thought to be Harappan. So sites from about this time. So, and also like, even if there weren't, we know that they had to get stuff off boats. And like, how do we know they had to get stuff on and then back off those boats? Because we find Indus Valley stuff all over the place. I mean, well, not all over. Uh, specifically, we find Harappan or Indus material at a little place called ore stuff's in mesopotamia so there's stuff so i mentioned that this is during the uh that like harappa really popping off around the, the early, early dynastic dynasty. and the I akkadian empire i know well i'm just mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. i'm just keeping everybody on board um and so we discussed the royal cemetery of more recently and it's relevant to our interests once again today uh because some of the things are excavated that weren't the great death pit as well as from other third millennium mesopotamia cities that I mentioned back in or never going to believe this. So there is a narrative arc. So good. I know, right? I'm still, still relishing that. But there is a narrative arc to me mentioning all of those like tiny old city states.
1: Right. And you, in, in the or episode, you mentioned Sargon of Akkad.
0: Yeah. So the early dynastic period ended um, in Mesopotamia when Sargon of Akkad decided to get, get on his empiring and establish the Akkadian Empire. Um, so he claimed to have conquered the known world, which like wasn't that big, but I mean, give him a break. It was the first. It's what empire. he knew, yeah. Um, and so he illustrated this fact when he said in an inscription, "The ships from Maluha, the ships from Magan, the ships from Dilmun, he made tie up alongside the key of Akkad." We've been talking about Maluha this whole time, so Maluha, yeah, right. Uh, so Maluha is understood to be the Indus Valley ish. Um, possibly a name, at times, a name for that area yeah 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 and so sometimes um the toponyms, so sometimes the names for places are less about the place in its absolute location on the earth but more about what comes from there and what it's known for because think about they don't have like they don't have google earth they don't have like a real tight grasp of like absolute locations and so you may live your entire life never move it like never getting too far away from where you're from so your sense of the world around you and your sense of the universe is is sort of different than what it is today so maluca is roughly considered to be the indus valley but also includes at times um places as far west as the Makran coast of what's now iran so it's that kind of coastal area um in close contact with the indus valley so it could be other rivers it could be other but it's that area uh magan another place that's got boats um it like docked the at at sargon's quayside um so magan in the third millennium bc refers to the oman peninsula where i used to work uh, and so what i said before about how sometimes maybe things move Um, it may be moved to southern Egypt in the first millennium but we don't care about that right now because for Sargon's purposes it was southeastern Arabia and then Dilmun is basically what's today Bahrain Um, so it's it's Bahrain and then like maybe Qatar and like sort of the islands there in the Gulf so Dilmun was known chiefly for two things boats and being the location of paradise so, oh. yeah. So it's really, po- really twist. Yeah. Um, it's possible for Dillman to both be a physical place that like actual people like these merchants or these seafaring types could actually come from. They could have been born there, trained there, whatever. Um, they could originated from there or stopped off there. Um, but it could also be a holy place that exists in mythology. That's so far East that the sun is continually rising and immortality is achieved. So it's thought that when Gilgamesh went to go find Utnapishtim, to like Noah, like Sumerian Noah, that um, is mm-hmm. immortal because he survived the flood. It's thought, it's maybe he was in Dillman because he was so far east that the sun's always rising, it's always dawn, everything like you live forever. So if you think about that in terms of cosmology. So uh, so Dillman's cool, but I'm done talking about Dillman. Um okay. <laughs> so trade was was a two-way street among all of these places. So you've got stuff that's coming from Malucha, coming from Magan, coming from Dillman, and it's all moving around the the gulf and the arabian sea and the indian ocean like stuff's moving and it's coming through mesopotamia um and another reason why we know it's not only because of what's written in historical records we also find seals (laughs) oh gosh it never gets old um we find seals and their impressions i bet it does for the listeners oh oh for sure yeah like thanks for still listening we find seals in their impressions with indescript on them that's uh, my seal
1: impression <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice okay so we find we find indescript on seals found in Mesopotamia so I've talked about uh cylinder seal impressions before stamp seal impressions before um it's a it's a receipt so that's sort of yeah uh, and then they also work like anything would for signatures um so it's that that sort of thing it could be a return address but like so that's what they're Used for. Uh, we find them in Mesopotamia um, that have Indus script on them. So that's not Mesopotamian. And we also find Sumerian cylinder seals. So cylinder seals that have Sumerian writing on them that feature animals um, that look Indusy. So they mm, look, okay. they, and so you'll see, um, or you'll also see animals that would have had to come from the Indus Valley, like water buffaloes um, and rhinos are not native to mesopotamia no. no they are not so either somebody brought a water buffalo or somebody brought something that had a water buffalo on it and they're like i like that uh, and then they they take it on and then likewise they're into seals with sumerian style motifs like that you see um like a, a dude holding two lions up by the throat like a strongman type master of beasts yeah and then you see a similar you see a similar motif in indus valley seals where it's just indus looking and and like the lions the lions look weird because they don't have lions there right so they're just like medieval drawings where it's like
1: draw me an elephant and someone was like can you describe it and then they tried and it's like
0: no or like um several hundred years ago um paintings of tigers in japanese drawings that are just like weird like bulky cats yeah they are tigers but somebody was like i've
1: seen a cat it's like that right but big
0: yeah and so it's yeah it's like it's like you're describing a tiger to a police sketch artist and they're like this (laughs) and you're like no but thank you um and then also apart from um stylistic elements there are etched carnelian beads so carnelian is a stone that you find it's red it's red. So you find these etched carnelian beads all over Mesopotamia. You find bunches of them that would have probably been jewelry. Um, But you find them even as far as Egypt, um, which is pretty far. That's a good way to go. And then you also find, um, and this is a really good indicator of trade, you can find weights. So these weights that would be used in determining units for transactions. Right, the standard of measure. Yeah, so you'd be like, oh, you're going to have this many units of grain or like Dillman onions.
1: Oh, is that That's, like a bloomin onion?
0: No, Dilman it's like a, onion. it's no, it's like a Brussels sprout. Like how there's no reason oh. to really think that like dolman onions come from dolman, but they're yeah. dolman onions.
1: Huh. Like a Jerusalem artichoke. Neither from <laughs> Jerusalem nor an artichoke.
0: Yeah, so sort of like that. I think they might have been onions. Um oh. so so you've got all of those things going on. And also, fun, fun, fun. So we already mentioned Mark Kanoyer. Like he's the guy now in, in the working in harappa mm-hmm. like he's he's like big deal in harappa i've included in the show notes a lecture that he delivered at the oriental institute at the university of chicago entitled maluja the indus civilization and its contacts with mesopotamia so if you're interested in learning even more mark can tell you the evidence for interaction between mesopotamian and mesopotamia and the indus valley isn't limited to beads and shells and stamps and pots we may be able to find evidence for actual harappans not in Asp- actual
1: Harappans, you say?
0: Yeah, in Mesopotamia. So there's um, there's a seal. There's a seal at the Louvre uh, with, and it's got. The Louvre in France? it um, It's got an Akkadian inscription on it um, that reads Shu Elishu, interpreter of the Melukhan language. So the name Shu Elishu is a Semitic name. So it's got Eli in it. So Eli. Is Akkadian, and if you've ever heard of this guy Allah, Med, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. same word. So and like oh. Bab so and also Babylon comes directly from the Akkadian meaning Bab, which also means like gate or door in Arabic. Bab is gate. Ilan, uh, is a genitive for so, gods. Gods so, gate. gate, gate of the gods. So yeah. this name Eli, that like. Eli in there. Um, this is a... It's like, K- like L in Hebrew. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Same, same. Yeah. Um, so, Maluhan isn't a Semitic language. So, either... Wait, so this guy. Either Shulishu was a local guy that happened to learn Maluhan, Maybe he went to Middlebury and... <laughs> <laughs> to work. And, um, <laughs> or, like, the Monterey Institute. Yeah, since, yeah he since made he his went, own curriculum. Since, yep, since, yep, yep. since he mm-hmm. went... Since he, like, worked in, like, government... He probably went to the Monterey Institute. They like to send people there. Oh, my God. Um, Or um, he was from Maluha, and he took on a local name when he moved to Mesopotamia because he got sick of people mispronouncing his name. Um, The way that somebody might adopt an American name when they move to the States for school or for work. So this guy, Shu Elishu, his title, his business card was like Maluhan interpreter. Right. Cool. Um, Yeah. So way to go, Shu. Um, elsewhere. Um, I was gonna
1: say Shugo Girl, but that's not nah. It's not good, it's, nah. It's it's not You
0: can, can. Um, elsewhere, in an article published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, our good friends at JAS, um, Mark, Mark Knoyer um, and some colleagues discussed the possibility of determining whether or not you can find actual Carapin bones, um. <laughs> using strontium isotope analyses from tooth enamel, from, of the people buried at the Royal Cemetery of Ur. Um, so a lot of the study of exchange between Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley has sort of relied on um, sort of proxies for trade right. and, and exchange. So like these carnelian beads and like shells. Um, but if and you can like find textual, actual
1: people, that's...
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good indicator. So the idea... Uh, And this comes from the the, um, abstract of this article. With the aid of strontium, carbon, and oxygen isotopes, it is now possible to develop more direct means for determining the presence of non-local people in both regions. This preliminary study of tooth enamel from individuals buried at Harappa and at the Royal Cemetery of Orr indicates that it should be feasible to identify Harappans in Mesopotamia. It is also possible to examine the mobility of individuals from communities within the greater Indus Valley region. Um, I feel like I should mention it. We've, we've mentioned this before, but just to give a quick rundown
1: of how strontium isotopes work, um, strontium is an element and it occurs in different proportions in the bedrock all over the earth. And since groundwater filters through the bedrock of a, a given place, um, the water that you're drinking as your tooth enamel is forming, as your adult teeth are forming, um, that is then, um, that, that strontium in whatever ratio is in your groundwater is getting into your teeth. And so you can look at someone's tooth enamel and figure out where they spent sort of the formative years of their life based on comparative strontium, um, ratios from, from all over the world. So,
0: yeah. And like formative for their bones, not formative for like their sense of self. Right. Yes. Formative for their teeth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so, while so this was in 2013 um and while it wasn't really it wasn't really successful in finding like tons of people who were like straight up Harappan. no it was establishing
1: a proof of of
0: concept because he was analyzing the teeth of people
1: from or and analyzing the teeth of people known from harappa and showing yeah these are really different you could tell the difference
0: and so um This is really awesome in terms of this period of time. If you think about what I was saying that um, trade is happening among these very different places, like geologically, um, it stands to reason that people could have ended up in another place. And so just looking at um, movements of populations and um, sort of not so much – Something like more substantive than interaction, actual mm-hmm. like um, integration of, yeah. of societies across great distances. It's super cool, and um, don't let it go unsaid because I'm here. Uh, we also find very clear evidence of trade between the Indus Valley and the Oman Peninsula down there in Im- in Magan. I found some once. You did. I found an Indus pot shard. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then you were like, what's that
1: doing in this place? In this yeah. in this place.
0: I, yeah, sure. Let's say that I did that. I probably was just like, well, because it's very hot. Uh, <laughs> well, let's like, move on with I was that. was like, what's this? <laughs> um, so at coastal sites like Ras al-Had, which is near the pointiest bit of, um, this is more of my geography lesson. Yeah, is it
1: a, is it a peninsular nubbin?
0: No, or
1: it's a pointy bit, but,
0: but Ross, um, in Arabic means head It's head. So, so it's sort of like, like beachy head or like, um, oh, like a cape. Yeah. it's a similar or, term. Or gay head on uh, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. And so this is near the pointiest bit of Oman that sticks out into the Indian ocean. So like where, it yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and so there excavators have found evidence of several communities that supported the maritime trade economy. Some of these were seasonal, um, because you think about there's like there's the monsoon season so the monsoon winds have a lot to do with
1: boats out during a calmer time
0: well and also like the monsoon the monsoon winds affect sort of prevailing winds for for boats so sort of like when it's more convenient and kind of helps you along but also so it's sort of like um people were there during the season that things are really going and then in the off season they go somewhere else um tourism Somewhere less rainy, um, and so nearby, like super nearby, um, at a site called Russell Jins, um, there's a Bronze Age harbor that has been excavated, and so we have a, a sense of what these famed boats of Magan looked like. Um, and now I'm going to read from the visitor's guide at the Russell Jins Museum. <laughs> Please do. Um, h- h- him. The discovery of impressed bitumen fragments and slabs. (laughs) They're just like, oh. yeah.
1: They're impressed. Uh, Oh.
0: Dated to the third millennium BCE at Russell Jinn's has provided information on procedures for reed and wooden boat construction, um, and imparted impetus to the study of early boat building and navigation in, in the Gulf and Western Indian Ocean. The bitumen pieces wear on one side traces of ropes, reed mats, reed bundles, and wooden planks, etc., while on the other side, several of them are still covered with barnacles, a type of shell well known to develop on the hull of boats sailing across the Indian Ocean. These are without any doubt pieces of the caulking of the of these over 4,000-year-old vessels stored for further use. As consequence of the bitumen find, a mid millennium BCE 12-meter-long boat replicate was built and tested. But much work is still re- <laughs> required to give a full account of this outstanding accomplishment of the early Omanis. So I'm going to say... Which is save, a way to say, like... Which is a beautifully, didn't go so good. <laughs> beautifully tactful way to say that, like, It was kind of of bonkers, um, but ultimately they got a boat of Magan to, like, get there. Oh, cool. But we'll save that for another episode, um, since some of it is very... It's a very particular type of experimental archaeology that had its ups and downs, and, like... Oh, so funny. But...
1: Well, I look forward to that. Hannah.
0: Apart from scooting around the ocean on their sick boats, um, what else... Are those Harappans known for? Okay, so here are some
1: very Harappan things. These are a few of... Harappan
0: nope. Most Harappanist things.
1: Oh, most Harappanist. Okay, so we mentioned this one already, but city planning. So um, the cities of the Indus Valley civilization had things like city grids and indoor plumbing um, and running water and drains the urban areas of the indus valley civilization included public and private baths Oh, sewage was disposed of or at least thought to be disposed of through underground drains built with precisely laid bricks and a sophisticated water management system with numerous reservoirs was established in the drainage systems drains from houses were connected to wider public drains for example many of the buildings at mohenjo daro had two or more stories which is like that's cool in itself yeah, yeah that's water and, cool. yeah and and water from the roof and the upper story bathrooms was carried through enclosed terracotta pipes or open chutes that then emptied out onto those street drains um in Mohenjo-Daro and and in other um Indus Valley cities we see some of the earliest evidence of urban sanitation um so this included Um, individual homes having water from wells. So I would assume that this is some of the wealthier households, but uh, households had their own individual wells and um, often had a room that was um, set aside for bathing and then the water from bathing. So the wastewater was directed to the drains that lined the streets. Um, Courtyard houses in the cities of the Indus Valley had both a washing platform and a dedicated toilet-slash-waste disposal hole, so like a a privy. Um, The toilet holes would be flushed by emptying jars of water down from the house's central well through a clay brick pipe and into a shared brick drain that would feed into an adjacent cesspit. These would be periodically emptied of their solid matter, um, which may have been used as a fertilizer out sort of in the more agricultural hinterlands, which... You know, using human waste to fertilize is not the best plan, but they wouldn't have known that. And as we mentioned before, there were also city walls that may have functioned as a barrier against flooding. Um, Another very Harappan thing, so we're switching away from planning but sticking within the the realm of sort of administration because now we're talking about the Indus script. We don't know a lot about the Indus script. It has not been fully translated. However, we do know that it's made up of partially pictographic signs and human and animal motifs, including um, a recurring and very puzzling unicorn. So let's just go ahead and put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that unicorn. So these instances of Indus script are inscribed on miniature seal stones um, made out of soapstone, terracotta tablets, and occasionally on metal. Um, Sir Mortimer Wheeler called them, quote... Little masterpieces of controlled realism with a monumental strength in one sense out of all proportion to their size and in another entirely related to it. What? It's basically he was saying like, wow, these are cool and so small.
0: Oh, some impressed.
1: Mm. Oh, impressed impressed
0: seals. Yeah. Uh, more, than, I
1: love this. More than a hundred attempts at decipherment have been published by professional scholars and others since the 1920s. Um, but now, as a result of increased collaboration between archaeologists and linguists and experts in the digital humanities, <laughs> computer nerds, it looks possible that that maybe we'll get we're closer to cracking it. Except, okay. So here are some reasons why, in particular, the Indus script have, has been such a tough nut to crack. In the 1990s and afterwards, uh, many Indian authors have claimed that the Indus script can be read in a form of early Sanskrit, which is the ancestral language of most North Indian languages, including Hindi. Um, In doing so, though, they support the controversial views of India's Hindu nationalist politicians that there has been a continuous Sanskrit-speaking Indian identity since the third millennium BCE. So, mm, is that is that a real linguistic truth or is that some some propaganda ring
0: Yeah, I feel like you could assign pretty much any language to the Indus script because the the sort of the characters of the Indus script repeat in a way that looks like language. Yeah. So, so if you especially assigned, tantalizing like what is it? So if you assign you could probably sort of shoehorn yeah. nearly any language to it because language it looks like language. Right, like because there are, there is, are bits of language to that, it. yeah. So, okay, okay, but but, we, but here are the, here are the problems. Yeah, there are,
1: and this is why there's no consensus on what this script actually means. So first, there's no firm information available about the underlying language of the Indus script. So, was this an ancestor of Sanskrit or Dravidian or some other Indian language family, or was it a language that has now since disappeared and is no longer spoken, or you know has no has no um, descendants? Um, linear B, which is the written language from the Mycenaean civilization, was deciphered because the tablets turned out to be in an archaic form of Greek. Mayan glyphs were deciphered because Mayan languages are still spoken. So people had a reference point. Yeah. Secondly, we don't know any names of Indus rulers or, or people from myths or historical records So we don't have, you know, when we talked about the Rosetta Stone all the way back in episode four, one of the reasons that Champollion was able to decipher it is because he recognized names, um, specifically the names of Ramses and Ptolemy. Um, We don't have anything like that in the Indus script. And third, um, as yet, there's no, and here's the Rosetta Stone again, there's no Indus inscription that's bilingual, so it doesn't, there's no... Multiple texts in different, or sorry, the same texts in multiple languages that would exist as as a Rosetta stone, as a a decipherment key. It is possible that such a thing exists because we know that the Indus Valley probably had a lot of interactions with Mesopotamia. So maybe there was a combined inscription, and maybe that exists in Mesopotamia. Um, we don't know. The Mayan decipherment started in eighteen seventy six using, Um, one of the Spanish codices um, that recorded a discussion in colonial Yucatan between a Spanish priest and a Yucatec Mayan speaking elder talking about ancient Maya writing. So that was a guide to deciphering Maya glyphs. So we don't have that. Nevertheless, the brief nature of the existing Indus text, so these are short little little, little post-it notes, but it, it might indeed suggest that it's not a full representation of the language it's maybe jotting notes down so in the same sense that cuneiform often is used to record receipts sort of shorthand descriptions of transactions it's not a text that sort of records prose um maybe that's the case here there is there are a lot of holes in in the knowledge but it's it's still possible that that uh somebody could crack that case maybe one of our listeners who knows maybe uh but let's get back to those uni- unicorns for a second, huh? Because because unicorns, a creature called a unicorn, so so like popularly known as a unicorn, appears a lot on these Indus inscriptions, um, and a lot of time and ink has been used in trying to understand what these are and what what they mean. Um, So There's a 1985 paper by an author named Shivangana Atre, and it sort of puts forward a whole bunch of possibilities for for these unicorns. So the first one is maybe it's a mythical creature. Maybe it's a unicorn. Like, all right. The one that I liked is, and we're going to post pictures of these on our social media so that people can see them, but um, maybe it's a portrayal of the local Indus cow only in perspective so that one horn is hidden behind the other. And if you look at these images it looks like you know anatomically it looks like a bull it looks like a cow like if you thought about another horn on there it really just looks like i'm skeptical of this whole mythical beast thing anyway
0: oh you're skeptical Um, about the existence of unicorns (laughs) Shh. Um,
1: but like this, this local Indus cow thing, this perspective cow thing, researcher John Marshall called this one "quote just within the bounds of possibility." Like what? that is
0: yeah, this definitely it's a possibility. Like less so, it's almost as likely as there being a straight up unicorn. I
1: think it's less likely to John Marshall than it being a mythical unicorn. Um, the the third possibility that this paper talks about is that much later, um, in Persepolis, there's a one horned bull depicted. So maybe it's an earlier version of that. Look, it really looks like a bull. There, uh, in that paper, the author went so far as to analyze the structure of the horn in the images, and this horn um, has transverse ridges on it, which is a, a feature of antelope horns, definitely not of bovid cow horns, bull horns. But bovid. well, actually, that's uh, I think antelopes are bovids as well. So I'm bovid, bovid, um. You know, the, the metamorphoses by Bobbitt. <laughs> That's such a dumb joke. Thank you. <laughs> Another theory is maybe it's a depiction of a wild ass, a donkey, and they just threw the horn on for mysticalness or, or fun. But, like, look at the body of it. It looks like a bull. It look, like, if you've seen a bull, you then you know what that guy was drawing. is a bull. Anyway, oh. um... The artists who were making this, whatever it was meant to be, they clearly have seen an an Indus cow bull, and and they're basing the body on that. I say bull because they're like it's clearly male. You can see the the boy parts, but on the most famous seal and inscribed steatite square. So steatite is another name for soapstone. Um, there is also this description which I I pulled from harappa.com
0: which is awesome harappa.com I, is a site that is like no, oh, it's wait. really yeah it's like a really cool entry point to harappa um there's like tons of contributions from like the major scholars of Indus Valley archaeology yeah no i just love that it's called harappa.com oh harappa yeah like, they got this they got it and on legit. that on the ground floor yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> it's great so here's
1: the the description of of this seal mm-hmm. quote Beneath the unicorn is a sacred object, which could have been anything from an animal's trough to an incense burner. So, like, that's the degree of certainty that we're that we're at with the Indus script. So
0: we're, we're nowhere close to knowing what's going on with this, um, but it's real cool. I love this. I just love that there's, like, there's someone out there who, brilliant, like, totally brilliant, great scholar, but... But unicorns. On the DL. Yeah, unicorns.
1: Well, I look forward to the and news don't that lie. a unicorn, a unicorn has been excavated. We'll we'll talk about it on old news.
0: Yeah, it'll come Subscribe up. Subscribe
1: to our our Patreon to uh, to access that hot take. <laughs>
0: um, one last thing, and this is, is a very famous thing. Um, yes, it's like super super famous in um like contemporary, more contemporary like South Asian studies because it's an image that you see. Up mm-hmm. through and we will today
1: we will include it in our social media. It's uh, the Dancing Girl statue, uh, which is a prehistoric bronze sculpture, which was made by lost wax casting, about 2500 BCE, in Mohenjo Daro, which again is in modern day Pakistan. And so the statue is it's very small. It's ten centimeters tall. It's about four inches tall, which depicts a naked young woman or girl with sort of stylized proportions, um, standing in what's described as a confident naturalistic pose, but would, which I would describe as so sassy. She there's
0: is. a There's a photo of me at like age seven standing in a very similar pose. <laughs> I have no doubt that that yeah. exists. That tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a
1: quote from Sir John Marshall, Whoa. who again was okay. skeptical about <laughs> the that's existence that's... of bulls. <laughs> he thought it was bull. Uh, quote. When I first saw them, meaning statues, the the statues of the Indus Valley, I found it difficult to believe that they were prehistoric. They seemed to completely upset all established ideas about early art and culture. Modeling such as this was unknown in the ancient world up to the Hellenistic Age of Greece, and I thought, therefore, that some mistake surely must have been made that these figures had found their way into levels some 3,000 years older than those to which they properly belonged. Now, in these statuettes, it is just this anatomical truth which is so startling that it makes us wonder whether in this all-important matter, John Marshall has his priorities in order, Greek artistry could possibly have been anticipated by the sculptures of a far-off age on the banks of the Indus. So clearly a fairly classicist perspective. Yeah. Um, so those are sort of the highlights of things that are Harappan. Like when we talk about Harappan or Indus Valley culture, those are the things: so city planning, this this mystery script, bull unicorns, bullicorns, unibulls, and and um, this
0: very naturalistic but also stylized art style. We've been so we've been at this for a while, and I'm pretty sure that not all of this like hour and change was us making seal noises. Um, so thank you. Um, so there are lots of theories about the end of Harappa and who was to account for it. But those I'm gonna say for deep cuts. Ah. Yeah. Way to tease. I know. Um well. That's all I got. Thank you for
1: coming along on this SEAL tour. Thank you, as always, for listening, for supporting the podcast, for telling your friends and everyone you know about us, for leaving reviews and stars on the places where reviews and stars go. You can find us wherever you find your pod content, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, not Spotify. You can find us on the Internet at thedirtpod.com. You can follow us on Facebook And there we are, The Dirt Podcast. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And um, if you have thoughts, questions, you want to tell us about unicorns, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We love you. Bye.
0: Bye. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.